0: Hey, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in to KMIH 88.9 The Bridge for another episode of Divided, a podcast where normally oppositely opinionated people can come together and converse in order to bridge the gap between different ideas and bring unity to our station and listeners. I'm your host, Katherine Grady, and today we have a special guest, a former White House employee and campaign manager, Sean Grady. Sean grew up in Olympia, Washington, the capital of the state and home to the governor. Now in San Francisco, he offers his insight on past political experience, what you can do to help heal the partisan divide, racists attacking him in North Dakota, reading confidential messages for the president, news stations breaking code, and more. We're getting into the nitty gritty, answering all the questions, so stay tuned. Thanks, Sean, for coming on the air. I really appreciate it. How are you? No, absolutely. I'm
1: glad to help. I'm doing well. Doing well. It's definitely been a a week. um, And so your podcast is very fitting for these times.
0: Awesome. I guess we'll just jump right into it. I have a lot of questions. Start from kind of square one. Why should people care about politics?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, a lot of people see politics as something that they can't really grasped um, in their everyday life and it seems kind of like their issues are put on the back burner, maybe not focused on, but really the reason uh, everybody should pay attention to politics is You know, it has so many uh, effects on your daily life, Mm -hmm. and that can be anything from the roads you drive on, the, I mean, the car that you drive and the mileage standards, Mm -hmm. the air that you breathe, the food that you eat, and Mm -hmm. the doctors that you visit and the schools that you attend. And I think, you know, once people realize how much of an effect they have, specifically on their local elections. Um, and how that can alter their daily life for the better. Uh, I think people then will, you know, recognize the need to stay engaged and, and, you know,
0: activate others and and participate in the democratic process. I think that's really important, and I think not many people really realize it comes down to even the air that you breathe. Exactly. And we'll get into elections later, but I'm glad you brought up local elections because I see a lot of signs for that kind of thing and don't really know what it's about, but it's... Yeah still really significant so what is your job now exactly
1: Yeah, so now I actually work uh, in tech um, so I work for a company called Sisense and it's a business intelligence and data analytics company but in my past life I used to manage democratic campaigns around the country and So that took me all around the country. Uh, I really started as a low-level staffer on some campaigns in Washington state and then I joined the Obama campaign back in 2008 as a field organizer. And I would say on that campaign, that's really how I got to understand politics, not just at the national level and not just at the local level, but really at a human-to-human level, because I was in an area of a country that is completely different in Mm. the middle of nowhere. And so that then made me want to get into managerial side of campaigns, and then I worked in California, Washington, and Pennsylvania, and I then worked in a little bit of political tech Uh, But right now, I currently just need a little break because
0: (laughs) um,
1: politics can definitely get a little draining. And so um, right now, I'm working in tech to uh, have a little more stability in my life.
0: Oh, well, that's cool. So what did you do for Obama? You said you worked on the campaign?
1: Yeah, so um, really back in 2008, my role was just a grunt worker. I was knocking doors, making phone calls in North Dakota, in a small town in Western North Dakota called Dickinson, about 13,000 people, mainly a farming community. And then uh, there's a tiny little college there. And then at the tail end of the general election, I was out in Madison, Wisconsin. And my job was to organize these students at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And so that involved everything from you know, getting out the vote, organizing events for big politicians coming through, former Secretary of State John Kerry came through, oh, cool. at, he was a senator at the time, um, and some other, uh, you know, surrogates, like actors, musicians, cool. stuff like that. That's yeah, cool. so that was really, really cool, and then I, you know, actually went and worked for Obama at the White House for about four and a half years, and there I, I Kind of similarly started on low end of the totem pole, where I was literally just reading his mail and
0: oh, wow. um,
1: reading death threats and suicide notes and, and policy questions that folks had, and moved on to do some legal and ethical compliance work, mainly around the Hatch Act, and which is po- political contributions by government employees uh, or money that you know comes through the, the White House and then also gifts that the first family and other staffers received. So yeah, just making sure everything was above board and uh, that definitely was something that we took seriously and and sadly it it kind of went by the wayside with the Mm. current administration.
0: I could see that. Based on that, what was your favorite and least favorite part of working for Obama?
1: So that's a great question i'd say i might have to break that into two parts because oh, yeah, fine. my favorite part of uh working on the campaign part of working for obama was probably my favorite and least favorite because you got i really figured out who and what america is made of and mm-hmm. you have interactions with people that you know you have nothing in common with and so oftentimes that would be a very good exchange where you could converse with them and Uh, My favorite part was winning them over and winning their (laughs) vote. My least favorite thing was probably the lack of sleep and Mm. also just the name-calling that we had to deal with, not just at ourselves, but about the Obamas, which was, that to me, really an eye-opening experience into the racism that exists in the country. Yeah, wow. That was on the campaign side. Yeah, and then uh, at the White House, my least favorite part of working at the White House was, I think, you know... Reading some of the the notes, not just the the you know suicide notes, which are very very brutal because mm-hmm. you get to peer into the mind of people who are at their at their worst moments, and, and you know they to write into the president saying, "Can you please help me?" It just mm-hmm. highlights the dire straits that these people are in to to go to that length because yeah, um, wow. they are so close to just like calling it quits. And similarly, the death threats that the first family got—that was um, pretty illuminating to see the hate that exists in the country. But then, my favorite part was, you know, reading the letters of support. I also helped with some events that would come through the White House, so I got to meet uh, national championship teams, uh, you know, World Series winners, um, famous actors and politicians and, and musicians, and so. Uh, I'd say that, as well as meeting the president multiple times, I think it's pretty surreal to say that I w- worked there and, you know, I-, I feel like I maybe took it for granted because um, it's just such a once-in-a-lifetime experience that I still pinch myself to this day saying, oh my gosh, I actually worked there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's really yeah. cool. So, yeah. you really seem to like the campaign part or, like, know a lot about it. Yeah. What What makes a good campaign?
1: That's kind of a broad Yeah, that situation. is a really good question. I think for any, like any job or any, anything in life, really, if you're going to follow someone, you have to have good leadership from the candidate. And I think what makes a good campaign is the inspiration that you get. And, and, you know, you mentioned that I I know campaigns pretty well. And I think I actually like at times campaign life better than I liked government life, because there's that idealism that you have. When you're on the ground, saying that you're going to work for change, and so a campaign really needs—it starts at the top, and that's a really forward-thinking, inspiring leader who is hardworking and uh, cares deeply about their staff and, and you know the job at, at hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as it needs a lot of good, it needs a good manager, and it needs people who are in it for the right reasons. And I think. Far too often, you see in business, in government, in politics, that a lot of times there are people that maybe are just in it for themselves. And I think you need to find people who are fighting the fight and care deeply, who are going to work seven days a week, you know, twenty-hour days. Yeah. Um, so it really just takes good organization, good leadership, and a lot of good personnel. I
0: think a lot of people are thinking, well presidency is cool. You're famous. But it's the most I guess basic American job in a sense because it's just to make sure the country is running so everyone else can just do what they want to do. We talked about sleepless night. It's not easy.
1: Yeah and it highlights the need for someone who is selfless and Mm. that cares about uh, something bigger than themselves and that's one of the things that is very very exciting about campaigns is you just have that feeling of fighting for the greater good and you are doing something that is a part of that's something that's bigger than yourself and there's something to be said about people who are uh you know fighting to make sure other people have access to good health care good education um you know good social security all that stuff And, and i think that's motivating because you realize that maybe there is a little selfishness in that altruism of fighting for other people but it's something that is definitely very motivating when you're around a lot of people who are kind uh, of working for the same cause. It's, it's kind of invigorating. Yeah,
0: I've experienced that in my volunteer work, and I think exactly. that's really important to highlight. So w- with all this talk about unity, what do you think is the biggest cause of the divide right now?
1: I mean, that is really the question of our time. Um, you know, I've worked in democratic campaigns, and so I'm so used to the... Democrat versus Republican kind of mantle that you're used to running, which is, you know, policy positions versus policy positions, candidate versus candidate. But what we're seeing now is reality versus fiction, Mm -hmm. disinformation versus fact. And what I think is the stark divide right now is whether we're gonna be a society that is based on fact and truth and hard numbers and statistics uh, and science or we're gonna be basing our reality on conspiracy theories, Mm. uh, hate, disinformation, spreading us fake news. And sadly, what we're seeing is that's really pervasive and it is driving a segment of society that wants to believe in their own narrative with leadership that is backing that narrative and stoking the flames of disinformation and and vitriol and, and the divide. Individual is taking people with them away from standard policy positions and just into a cult-like status. Sadly, we're at a moment in our society where we have to either shut down some of the access to this misinformation on social media, or we you know, are going to be faced with this crisis for The foreseeable future.
0: Wow. It's definitely important. Everyone should care about it. I know with my first question, a lot of people can just think, oh, I mean, it's just in the White House, but that's not true. It affects everything. You said something about social media. How do we, as just average citizens, lessen the
1: divide? It really comes down to tough conversations with loved ones and all of us getting literate in what media we consume. And I think engaging in people in a compassionate manner of conversation so one of the things that I really really liked from the Obama campaign that we were taught on day one it's called the story of self Mm. and this was an organizing tactic that we would use when engaging with voters to really just see what it is that motivates them and drives them politically and really more than just politically throughout their daily lives And so it would be, you would come to the door or dial a phone number, and then once you start talking to the person, you just say, hi, my name's Sean, I'm with the Obama campaign. Are there any issues that keep you up at night? What's the one or two issues that are really going to determine who you vote for?
0: Oh, those are good questions.
1: Yeah, and it's a way for them to come to you, as opposed to you being Mm. like, listen, I'm Sean, you need to vote for Barack Obama because X, Y, Z. Yeah, very controlling. you know, they they tell you, oh, I care a lot about uh, the schools that my kids go to, and then you know, okay, I'm going to talk about education.
0: That's good. Oh, I yeah, I care you can a adapt. lot. Yeah,
1: I care a lot about healthcare. Oh, okay, I'm going to talk about you know how his healthcare plan it was, you know, planning to save the average household twenty five hundred dollars a year. Wow. Oh, I'm going to talk about senior, you know, social security. Oh, you know, seniors issues, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's a good way of of engaging with people from a compassionate angle of letting them talk to you you listen as opposed to talking at them and I think we as a society need to do a much better job Mm, of listening to each other and hearing what are the things that are keeping people up at night and then coming to solutions on how to fix that collectively as opposed to talking at people and saying you need to think this way or that way and problems
0: Very controlling. Politics is supposed to represent the people, so that's good. Exactly. This is also good news sources, too, because they can appeal to their audience. And I'm writing a piece on how journalism and broadcasting can help you learn perspectives of people and share important issues that everyone should care about and all that kind of thing. The problem is, within this, journalism or in politics, which is supposed to be informing the people, for the people, that kind of thing, has kind of taken an opinionated turn. Now there's like this political divide that has extended to news networks. So what do you recommend for someone that's maybe unsure of their political stance, wants to get the perspectives that are factual and not manipulated and from both sides?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question because far too often we get in our echo chambers and we like confirmation bias to tell us, oh, your thought, your idea is the right idea. Mm -hmm when it oftentimes it's not. I've been wrong, proven wrong many a times. You have to have the maturity then to say, okay, I was wrong there. I'm willing to accept that and move on. So I think collectively we need to do a much better job of diversifying our news that we digest and that involves everybody on all sides of the political uh, spectrum. It doesn't mean just watching Fox or just watching MSNBC. It means tuning into the to those two as well as, for me, I find that the best news is, in, you know, like the some of the legacy ones, PBS, BBC, mm. um, New York Times, Washington Post, but, you know, I read, I'm on Twitter constantly, and so I have <laughs> yeah. a steady, yeah, steady digest of news coming my right way, but it's from all sorts of sources. And yeah. so make sure that you have a diverse portfolio of news that you take in, as opposed to just one or two websites that maybe tell you what it is you want to hear. Um, And that'll help you then to see, okay, what of the more kind of mainstream and fact-based news sites are carrying the same stories, you know, the AP, like I said earlier, BBC, PBS, look at those to see, okay, this is the standard kind of story that people are saying because then you, Mm. you, you can formulate, okay, that seems to be the prevailing kind of discussion around this topic or that topic and then you can kind of say all right that's that i think that's the accurate assessment here uh-huh. um, i mean there's obviously like cold hard facts uh, mm-hmm. around things like the temperature today is, is gonna, <laughs> yeah. there's no like you can't disagree on the temperature yeah um, you know and sadly we're seeing people are disagreeing on just standard math and statistics oh, for yeah. an election that took place and so coming to terms with the reality that maybe you're what happened didn't go your way, um, but having the maturity to do so and diversifying your news sources. Uh, mm-hmm. And one really good thing, just real quickly, is I helped Obama win re election against Mitt Romney, but Mitt Romney, this past Wednesday night after the events of the Capitol, you know, he said the best thing that we can do to the people who believe these lies is to tell them the truth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think it's the responsibility of elected officials, um, media organizations, people in positions of power to be honest and candid with the American public, even if those are hard truths. Well,
0: that is really important and one truth is when th- things are manipulated it can go so wrong so fast. Mm-hmm. Speaking of that, first of all there's been a lot of different conspiracy theories and that kind of thing that is maybe led up to what happened on Wednesday, January 6th or yeah. other, other things that we could get into for a while. But what is Antifa and QAnon? Do you
1: want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so Antifa is it really isn't an organization. It's more just an ideology of anti-fascists. And so there's a group called Black Bloc, which is some folks who are much more of the militant kind of physically confrontational side of Antifa. And so they, what they do is they really just, it's in their name, they're anti-fascists. And so anytime like the Proud Boys, Neo-Nazis, KKK, um, some far-right militia movements show up, they show up and just kind of confront them. So that's their kind of shtick. Politically, they you know can range from folks who are communists, folks who are just like leftist liberals, um, but really their just main motivation is to confront and root out fascism. And so that's Antifa. The QAnon is, it really actually is an offshoot of um, a few movements. So really back in the Obama campaign, there was the birther movement, which didn't believe that he was born in uh, America, that he was born in Kenya, kind of morphed into the Tea Party movement and took over parts of that early 2009, uh, which they were really kind of a supposed anti-tax group. But Mm -hmm. they took on some pretty um, militant ways uh, Mm -hmm. and some factions of heavy conspiracy kind of inundation then after that you had now president trump when he was about private citizen he was pushing the birther movement again back in 2011 and then you started to see that grow again um and then in 2016 there was something called pizzagate and pizzagate was a conspiracy theory that there's a pizza parlor one that i actually used to go to actually DC, which is really cool comet ping pong pizza uh, in Woodley, Woodley park what happened was Democratic National Commit- Committee got hacked and so some emails came out and they mm. saw these people online tried to see codes where codes didn't exist and mm. saw words like cheese pizza and believed that CP meant child pornography. Then they went to this comet pizza place where they would order pizza and these people believed that there were children in a basement, which didn't exist. This place had no basement. And so they believed that there was this big cabal of um, pedophiles in the Democratic Party that just never existed. So that was Pizzagate. Then you started to see once Trump got elected and Trump was kind of dealing with some fallout around um, Russian hacking and um, coordinated efforts by Russia and his campaign to deceive voters around certain issues, some of which were Pizzagate, but they then created this, once Trump was kind of dealing with some of the fallout, and you saw some of his folks getting indicted and arrested, Mm -hmm. there was a group that was formed kind of after Pizzagate, they believed that this person in higher up in government, um, with high up security clearance named Q was hmm. dropping these clues about what is actually going on behind the scenes and that Trump and Robert Mueller were actually working together to help root out Democrats in Hollywood and all these other elites Bill Gates and so on and so forth who were helping run a child sex ring yeah. globally. Does this Q so, person
0: even
1: exist? Yeah, Sorry. Does the Q person even exist? Yeah. No. No. But people believe it does and it really started on these websites 4chan and 8chan, and some people believe that the owner or creator of 8chan is the person that started Q, but it really just unleashed and tapped into this segment of society that was really willing to believe that Trump is the victim throughout Mm -hmm. the whole thing, and he is actually helping to bring down this cabal of uh, corrupt individuals when in reality Trump has been the most corrupt president we've ever had and he has been anything but an advocate for anti-corrupt means. You'll see people, you saw people at his rallies with Q signs, Q shirts. You saw people, the insurrectionists, the seditionists who invaded the Capitol on Wednesday wearing Q paraphernalia. And so it really, I'm going to plug another podcast on here because Um, I know your listeners like podcasts. There's a very good podcast that I recommend. It's called Rabbit Hole by the New York Times. And it goes down, it it talks about how people get um, kind of indoctrinated or radicalized online through YouTube and these other websites. And they would go and turn to QAnon. And and so Mm -hmm. it's really just this kind of evolving conspiracy theory that really, you can't even kind of pin it down now because it just, encompasses so many random, ridiculous kind of routes
0: yeah. that
1: they believe, you know, Hillary Clinton was drinking the blood of babies and stuff what like that. What the and heck? So, yeah, oh it, really, and it has some religious overtones, too, mm. about these people think that they are, like, fighters for Christ. And so oh. it's scary, extremely scary stuff that the yeah. FBI and Department of Homeland Security have labeled it as, um, you know, domestic, uh, you know, I, th- I think they may even have labeled them domestic terror groups, oh. not yet terror groups, but like, you know, they have definitely put them on the watch uh, for people to be on the lookout because yeah. they, you know, as we saw on Wednesday, they are doing real harm to our uh, government and our political process. Mm-hmm.
0: Seems like social media, internet can really take you down a rabbit hole for a lot of things. I know a lot of Democrats are concerned about this. I think everyone should be, why should Republicans be concerned about this? What happened on Wednesday that is.
1: Yeah, I think what you're seeing is the Republicans for far too long kind of coddled this segment of their, cause the majority of Q followers are Republicans or mm-hmm. libertarians or just far right um, kind of individuals. And this is their base. And so, what they're worried about now, and what you've seen with Lindsey Graham getting harassed at Washington Reagan National Airport, mm-hmm. um, and Mike Pence getting, you know, hearing, literally hearing when he was in lockdown at the Capitol, hang Mike Pence.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And what you're seeing now is the people who were the loyalists to Trump up until now, they're now being thrown under the bus. And saying that they are treasonous and traitors to the QAnon and the far right cause, and so for them, what they're deathly afraid of—and I say that seriously—is you know getting death threats, worrying about their family. There was a report that you know some of the 130 or 140 members of Congress who voted to challenge the uh, election last Wednesday only did so because they are worried for their family and so
0: mm.
1: they need to be worried about this because you know this isn't just uh as i said earlier a democrat versus republican thing this is a, a fact versus fiction thing yeah in a, in a reality versus just like an alternate universe and so for them they have to worry because these are the people that they deal with on a day-to-day basis and so in order to one read win re- election but just to stay safe. They have to deal with this stuff um, in a matter of containing it and stopping the spread, and unfortunately, it looks to be spreading like a wildfire.
0: Yeah, wow. Jeez. Our nation's pretty screwed right now. I think we can all (laughs) agree on that one.
1: Yeah, it's not good.
0: Yeah, and it seems like we're reliving a lot of historical patterns. Have you or people you know been referencing or inspired by other governmental structures that aren't experiencing this chaos. What are other countries doing well that we, you think, should do? Uh, or if they've recovered from some sort of civil thing like this, how- Do you have any answer for that? I know that's like a broad question.
1: No, it's a, it's a good question though because it, you have seen in certain countries uh, minimization or uh, fines for spreading of fake news. Mm-hmm. However, um, you can't find people for speech here unless it's incitement, unless it's uh, directly. You know, you can't yell um, mm-hmm. fire in the crowded theater. You can't print lies. You know, because we have libel laws and slander laws. And, Um, but our free speech laws are the most open, I think, on the planet. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: what we need though is for private companies that run these social media accounts. And we've seen that over the last week is to really root out the problem of uh, misinformation, disinformation, and, uh, you know, this violent hate rhetoric, um, that's spreading so far and wide and, and, you know, you open your phone up and you have access to the planet and you can understand what somebody else is saying across, you know, in vanilla, you can (laughs) talk to someone, you know, in Uganda right now and and get real time answers. But what I think you are seeing from other countries that they're doing effectively is just handling the fake news epidemic uh, with better tools which means to kind of crack down on some of the social media, um, uh, just kind of leeway that they get. Um, but what you're seeing now is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they've realized that this is a problem that has gotten out of control and yeah. they now have to handle it. And so that's why people have kicking off so many people from these websites. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at what other governments do better than us, I do think that Having a parliamentary system is a far better representation of the electorate. You know, most, just a lot of people don't feel like their opinions and and voices are being heard because we have a two party system. And, you know, I'm not advocating one way or the other or for, you know, 30 parties, but I do think we just need more voices that reflect, you know, the majority of views, you know, more views. Uh, and, and that will in the long run be beneficial for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think but, that's kind of the point And it's gotten too far away from that.
1: Yeah, yeah But I think you know, I'm an eternal optimist and so I do believe hmm. that we will be okay at some point and we're seeing companies act swiftly given what happened last week and and government officials, you know, holding feet to the fire on some some folks and so I'm always gonna be an optimist that we can fix this but it does take people staying engaged, voting, um, knocking on doors, making phone calls, um, and just making sure that we're getting the government that we deserve.
0: Wow. What about the people like me, or people that aren't meeting the qualifications yet, that can't vote yet? Um, how and, are they? Yeah, how do they get their ideas great. shared?
1: So here in San Francisco, where I'm looking right now, uh, they put on the ballot letting 16-year-olds vote in local elections, so
0: okay.
1: pretty soon you're going to see maybe some movements to do that across the country, but even without the ability to vote, you can knock on doors, you can um, still be active in the causes that you care about, um, whether that be at the, you know, for a non or just volunteer work, but you can volunteer on campaigns, you can um, really just help in a of array of ways to stay active organize your friends on you know through social media spread accurate information mm-hmm. so you can play a part too
0: awesome i think i've been doing some of that and it's hard yeah, during ooh, covid yeah. but that's awesome. This podcast
1: is a testament to mm-hmm. that.
0: Local elections. I'm glad you touched on that because it's not just the presidential ones that matter.
1: Yeah, exactly. They they dominate the media landscape. But what you'll find is your day to day life is much more affected by the city council member that you elect, mm-hmm. the um, county council rep you have, the fire district, you know, individual who's in charge of the water commission. Okay. All those things. Those yeah. are directly related to. Your well-being, and you're going to have interaction with that far more than you're going to have interaction with, uh, you know, the federal government.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's like two thousand miles away. What would you say your final message is for someone listening in today? What's your advice?
1: I think my advice, you know, just given the name of the podcast, divided right. Mm-hmm. So now is a moment to really. For all of us to take a look in the mirror and say, "What are we doing to bring people together?" And how am I, you know, helping out my community and my country? And if that means, you know, diving into new news sources, learning more about issues before we talk about them, um, having hard conversations with family, compassionate conversations, um, you know, I think it's just we need to do our part to stay educated and to spread good information to as many people as we can and to have conversations listen to people what are the concerns that they have what are the problems that they go through on a day-to-day basis before we just you know talk at them and so yeah um have open and honest conversations you know one of the things that i always hate hearing is when people say we don't talk religion or politics mm. but that's how you best get to know people that's how you know them at their core Mm -hmm. and that means having constructive conversations around these tough issues and seeing each other as humans and not just our enemies
0: that's a really good way to put it thanks sean Well, well that's awesome i've kept you pretty long but i've learned a lot just being your interviewer and i hope someone listening in feels the same way so thanks so much for letting me spend some time with you today
1: Absolutely, I'm glad I was able to help and um thank you for the project that you're doing and I know this is a uh, for a good cause and so hopefully you know when people listen to this, they can uh bridge the divide a little bit.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Divided. I'm your host, Katherine Grady, here on KMIH 88.9 The Bridge. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and many other platforms, the Transistor website features. You can also visit the KMIH station at 88.9thebridge.org. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really helps us stay in the charts, and then we can gain feedback from what you guys like and dislike and adapt our episodes accordingly. Have a wonderful day and I'll be back here again soon with another exciting episode. I have many in the works that I think you guys will be excited about. I'm Katherine Grady and this is Divided. Hopefully a little less so. Take care.
1: This is Divided.